Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Coming up to 9.02, it's 3RRR, the show is Radio Marinara. You may be listening via the web, you may be listening via your FM device. My name's Dr Beach. And I'm Cade Mills. Cade Mills, how are you going? Fantastically well for being in the studio. I was just talking to the panellists about how we celebrate everyday normal things now, such as I'm going to go to the pub and watch the football this afternoon. I haven't done that for so long. (laughs) That is a celebration. Did you say what you were just saying to the panellists? That's yeah, a, that's, a, I was, that's, if, a, that's how Kent. It is Kent. I didn't know whether, you know, we, we've we all, all got, know. some Kent, people Kent's have code names. That's you right. know, Dr. Beach. Dr. Beach, that's yes, right. Dr. Yes. Surf. There's a Dr. few Surf. sort of, you know, people who don't want their identity known. But. Yeah, you mentioned Dr. Surf and a big shout out to Dr. Surf. It's his birthday today. Happy birthday, Dr. Oh, Dr. Surf, if you're birthday. listening. I'm hoping um, the surf turns it on for him. Yeah, that's right. So three boys in the studio today. Bron is still feeling a little bit under the weather, so our thoughts go out to Bron. And our thoughts and thanks also go out to Tim Thorpe for doing a wonderful quick fill last week. Thank you very much, Tim. We were all away in various places. I bolted off to Brisbane for a bit of an emergency. Came back, had my COVID test on COVID neg- negative. You'd be um, Thanks for letting to, me know now. You'd be pleased Dr. to know Beach. I'm sitting in the studio <laughs> with you. Got back from Friday lunchtime and, oh, we need to do something. Yes, and I just, heard... Um, just got out of dodge in time. I heard Tim, you know, playing some marine-related music and throwing in the fish puns as often as he could during that set. It was quite entertaining. I was down at Mornington Peninsula. I think we should give Tim a PhD in marine biology after this. Yeah. <laughs> it goes with all the other awards he's got. Yeah, it sure does. Okay, we've got a big show coming up. As always, we're going to get back. We're going to kick off with a, um, a chat. We're going to catch up again with Mary Pickard. Those of you who might have been listening on February 21st, Bron interviewed Mary about a proposed development at Cape Bridgewater, which is down near Portland, a 250-bed monstrosity on the beautiful Cape down there. And we're going to catch up with Mary and see what's happening there with, um, with the Minister for Planning and the advisory committee that he set up for them. And then, um, yeah... Cade, after yeah. that, bit of, bit of slug action. We are going to talk in the slug, world. slug action. Well, everybody loves a bit of slug action. So we are going to be talking about, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about some headlines around decapitating sea slugs that can regrow their body from their head. Saw that. Yeah. And so they're um, within the group called Sacaglossans, which I will let the presenter that we're getting. So Nicole Mertens uh, from ReefWatch uh, runs the sea slug census in Victoria here. Can and you say that again? The sea slug census. Right, okay. Yes. Um, the the slogan for the first year was we see sea slugs by the seashore. Right. So I managed to survive that. Would you like to have a go at that, Dr. Beach? Um, we see sea slugs by the seashore. Well done. And so Nicole actually has a thing for these sacoglossin species. So she's going to come in and talk well, about... I thought they sacoglossins, right? They're sacoglossins. Have I got that wrong? There's a couple of marine words I've always had wrong. Like, you know I, what? I always thought it was an enemy. I actually wrote it. It is a sacagloss. C-S-A-C. There's no R in there. Yeah, I was wrong then. Yeah. So I actually had to do this in the car this morning before I come in just to make sure I got it right. We prepare very well on this program. (laughs) Yeah, we're giving away all our secrets. But anyway, Nicole's going to come in and talk about that. But then also the most recent sea slug census that we had in Victoria in March. And there were 
think about another six locations throughout Australia that were doing a census around the same time. So see how we're stacking up against the rest of the country. Nudie breaks you're talking about, aren't you? We are, yeah. Well, we're talking about slug-like creatures. It's a very difficult thing to define and I'm not going to try. So we can throw that question at Nicole and it's always a curly one that she has great pleasure in answering. And Nicole's from VMPA? She is from the VMPA, yes. Reef Watch? Yes. Wonderful. Which, complete conflict of interest as I am also from the same location. Yeah, I was wondering if you're going to share that one. Yeah. No, it's, that's it's out right. there now. It's all cool. Yeah, yeah it's cool. You're not, you're not going to get the sack on Monday? Ah, look, we'll see. <laughs> It'll be worth it for this segment, uh, trust me. <laughs> to wrap up the show, we're going down to... Um, to Warrnambool, and we're going to chat with Trish Corbett, who works at Deakin University at their campus down there. She works in many beautiful places, Antarctica. We've had Trish on the show a few years ago talking about the work that she's been doing on um, toxicology at Davis Station, the effluent that's going out there and what it might do to the environment. Uh, but it's much closer to home today. She's talking about Middle Ireland. Many of us would have heard of that, where we have a colony of fairy penguins. And there's a lovely group of dogs out there who are looking after them, those Italian sheep dogs. I keep wanting to call them Weimaramas, yeah, I keep but they're not. There's so. something that, uh, you know, Trish will correct me on that. But, yeah, she's been doing a lot of work on that. So I'm looking forward very much to hearing from Trish. That'll be about quarter to nine. No, it'd be about quarter to ten, wouldn't it? Because it's down. It would be. Well, yes. it's after that yeah. time now. Yeah, we haven't switched over to daylight savings yet. <laughs> Kate, I can see you holding the weather there. What's it going to look I like? I am, yeah, the sound of the paper crinkling in the studio. It's mm-hmm. nice to have that sound back. Today's going to be a beautiful day. We've got a top of 20. It's that crisp morning. Uh, we've got some north, northwesterly winds at Saw the that. moment. So, you know, nice on the open coast there. Um, and it's basically going to switch around to the southwest sort of later in the day. Tomorrow we're heading, we've actually got a really nice week ahead of us. Tomorrow 19, Tuesday 20, 23 on Wednesday, 29 Thursday, 27 Friday and 29 Saturday. So leading into that Easter break, we have some absolutely sensational weather. So people should be making plans to get wet and salty. On the water at the moment, there's a little bit of surf around. Um, the Morning Peninsula is probably going to have a bit more than the surf coast, but as I um, explained to my partner, it's just a matter of having the right equipment. That's why I ordered three surfboards during lockdown. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I can see you're, you're barefoot and in board shorts, um, as always. I am ready I, to I, go. I kid you not, listeners, <laughs> yeah. this is not a thin pastiche. Cade, he, he, he's in, in uniform the whole time. Completely, but... Um, yeah, there's, there's a wave down there. So, you know, with the right equipment, you'll always have some fun out in the water. And if you want to know what the tides are, at Point Lonsdale, it was low tide at 5.20 this morning, high tide around 12 o'clock, and then again low at later this afternoon, about 5.43. Okay. And guess what? Bron's listening. She's just texted me to say it's Marama Dogs. Smiley face. Thanks, Bron. <laughs> 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 the spirit is with us. The spirit is with us. A uh, little bit of news. I was reading um, with no show last week. I was up in Brisbane. So I, I, I imagine we talked about this on the radio, Mariner. It would have been a bit hard. But there was a big item in the news about a lovely fossil that was discovered from the Cretaceous in Mexico, a planktivorous shark. I don't know if you saw that in the um, in the papers or in the... In the journals, it I was did. in so nature or was in nature or in science? Yeah, yeah referred to as an, e- an eagle shark, which conjured up interesting sort of visuals in my mind, as far as, you know, eagles, large wingspan, and then, like, throw a shark in between it. Well, yeah, kind of like that. It's pretty, it's, um, you know, it's not very big. It's not like, you know, sharks are not always, you know, huge, but this guy was only about a metre long, but it's got, like, big wings out the side, you know, a couple of big arms out the side. So picture a manta ray, which has got those fins or whatever. They're not fins, but they're kind of those palps at the front that come out and they gather in the plankton. So rays and sharks are... Related 
and that they don't have bones. They're not bony fishes. They've got cartilage in them. Um, but this is the first time that there's been a shark, which has identif- been identified, um, let alone the living one, or one from the, um, the fossil record that has this kind of habit of being planktivorous like the mantis. And this is very interesting because this is in a group of sharks that was around before the mantis and the other rays branched off from them. So did they have any theories about it being related to mantis? Oh, I didn't read that Has deeply, that Kate. I was looking, I was <laughs> well, then, we can ask. We've got Brent Francicelli coming in two weeks' time when Fom and myself are going to be in. And we're going to be talking about the ethics of fossil collecting, but I think we'll throw him this one as well and see what he's got to say about it. Yeah, there's a nice there's a whole lot of um, pictures here that I could go through and sort of... But yeah, go, go to science. I'm sure you might have read about it in the paper. But also the other thing, talking about sharks and rays, lovely sighting as well off Lady Elliot Island of cow-nosed rays, which are a little bit like true eagle rays. This was um, about a week ago, I think it was. I'm not aware of this one. Uh, yeah, so cow-nosed rays. Don't see too many of them around, but there was a lovely school of them off Lady Elliot Island and one of the people up there who's looking after that place. And Lady, Elliot, Lady Elliot Island is off the town of 1770, not too far from Gladstone, oh, yeah. Gladstone Bundaberg, so southern part of the reef. Um, it's been rejuvenated over the years. Um, and it's now a lovely place next to Lady Musgrove, Lady Musgrave Island, not too far from Heron Island, all that. Anyway, wonderful imagery. You can find it on Facebook and see those beautiful gliding schools of cow-nosed rays, which is very, um, yeah, unusual for that area. And that wasn't why you were in Brisbane chasing them, was it? No, I was, I was visiting a um, sick brother. So, yeah, nice. shout out to Rob yep. if you're listening up there. Um, those of you who might have been listening to the program Oh, about five weeks ago, I think it was February 21st, we interviewed Mary Pickard from um, from Cape Bridgewater, which is down near Portland, about a proposed development that's going ahead there with perhaps um, 250 beds on this pristine headland. Uh, upsetting quite a few people. Um, I can imagine why. And for an update on that, let's get it go straight back to, to Mary. So, Mary, how are you going down there? Oh, good, thanks, Dr Beach. Pretty good. It's a lovely day here. It's a very beautiful day up here in, um, in East Brunswick as well. Um, describe to us a little bit. So, so where are you? Are you looking out over the water, looking up at the Cape itself? Uh, yeah. Um, I actually live a bit inland from it, and I can, look out, I, can't, I can look over to the ocean and see the Cape. It's a beautiful, rugged Cape. It has farming land on the top and natural vegetation all around the edges and sticks out into the Southern Ocean, which is often pretty rugged. It's... Um, it's normally very windy down here, so it's nice and quiet today for a change. Uh, yeah, it's a very wild coastline. Basically, it's a large cape that sticks out with um, wild vegetation and long beaches on either side of it, it's all part of Coastal Reserve. Very beautiful and, place. And I've, I've yeah, had a look at, the, at your site, the Safe Cape Bridgewater, and, and had a look around down there on a few sites. And In fact, about 30 years since I've been down to that area myself, but as you said, it's it's pristine. You spoke with Bron at length about five weeks ago about what's happening, the proposals there for this this 250-bed development, I think it is, Mary, and how that's now sitting with the planning minister, Richard Wynne, or rather a um, a committee that he's set up of three. Um, Can... can before we get into that, just for those people who have not, not, may not be aware of what's happening, just a bit of a recap of the story so far from you would be great. Sure. Okay, so in uh, December 2019, a, a, a large external developer put in an application for a big resort on the Cape. So it's uh, extending the existing very small settlement onto the, onto the Cape, which is currently vacant land. Oh, not vacant land. Basically, it was a paddock. So it's, it's a large resort that would sit up on the cliff top over a very small 
settlement and a very small public beach area um, and the rest of it's all undeveloped so it would be a massive impact on the skyline skyline and on the local amenity because it would more than double the permanent population of the little hamlet uh, and so it's it's a it's sitting up on the, it would sit up on the cliff top and it, it's got a front as long as the mcg and it would be four stories high so um the local council actually decided they couldn't make a decision on it and they referred it to the minister and so the minister set up under the priority projects planning committee mechanism has set up a three-person expert committee to hear it and they've had some directions hearings and they're going to have the main hearings for two weeks starting at the end of may uh, but there's a lot of things in between i can tell you about yeah so what's happening between now and that well first of all that that three-person planning committee are there lawyers involved all of this are there going to be lawyers from the other side uh, do you have to go and fund lawyers to to represent you your case yeah yeah basically the the other side the, the developer has engaged a professional legal counsel and they said they were going to be briefing a senior counsel and at the moment they have a junior counsel supporting their directions hearings but um, we're expecting the senior counsel um, silk for the actual hearings so they uh the people who are opposed to it, so it's a group, a large group of community members. There's around 50 individual group people who have asked to be heard. And they, in terms of the legal arguments, they're being represented, we are being represented by the Save Cape Bridgewater Association, and which has been fundraising for not just legal representation, but expert witnesses, because there's a lot of issues here to do with the geology, the environment, um, the impact, planning impact and so on. Um, and the developer has said they're calling around 11 expert witnesses and they cost as much as lawyers. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, and so we, we're scratching to get a few expert witnesses um, uh, and there'll be a big impact from the community community submissions as well. But, yes, it's a really expensive exercise. It's expensive is, is, is the word here. It really kind of, I'm, I'm just saying dollars in my head, the, the thing's yeah. being built to generate dollars. Uh, because yep. there's going to get so much money back for it if it gets built and you know, the people coming down, they're spending all this money, which um, we could talk about again, whether that's a good thing or not. Uh, but then you have to chuck more money out to represent your side to pay for, you know, to get, get, get another silk. You're going get, to get, get a, a QC, are they still called QCs or just silks? <laughs> um, oh, they, 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 they can be silk or QC or senior counsel. Right. All the same okay. thing. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's look at the um, argument with money. So that, I'd, I'd imagine the developer and others, perhaps council, are thinking, well, this is going to generate some jobs. Um, we've all heard that with um, you know, Adani and other things where it's going to be, you know, the people who want to put these proposals forward say so it's going to be lots of jobs, but then you look at it and it's right at the beginning when the thing's being built and then they're going to be gone. What is the argument from that side for this development? Yeah, well, they, they want a high-end resort and they think that they that their argument is that they can bring in people who are going to be five-star-plus clients um, and um, that they say that this will generate something like 250 jobs locally. And how they actually get that, we're not sure right. because, um, be, because perhaps they're talking about flow-on effects. But actually, most people around here, there's no economic case made for it. And the experts on this sort of industry around here are saying, well, how can they ever even fill that thing? And and the other thing is that this developer is not actually the organisation that runs these things. They just build things. So a lot of people are worried that they might even end up going and building it and then it won't be viable and it will be have ruined the landscape. 
um, for no reason. So they just have this white elephant sitting up there on the cape. Absolutely, yeah, goodness, that's yeah. A terrible so, thought. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Um, I just also wanted to mention that um, the developer talked a lot about Gundichmara culture. The local Aboriginal mm-hmm. landowners around here talked a lot about them, their their cultural sites, Budgebim in particular, and using their language and and so on without any permission from them. Uh, so uh, at the last directions hearing this week, the Gundichmara um, people, two two different groups, have actually asked to be heard. So one of them was very focused on this cultural appropriation stuff and saying, well, you know, they didn't ask us. Um, and so that's part of it. And the other one is talking about the wider cultural significance of the Cape in terms of the song lines. And the committee, the panel, has um, agreed that they can actually make submissions. So that was good. That was a good thing this week. And with so the other arguments that are going to be discussed around this with the environment you mentioned geology before is there anything that's significant with the geology that might come up from the other side or that you're going to be putting forward uh well i'm not i'm not an expert on geology but this whole area has huge limestone caverns under it yeah. uh, and the cliff itself so this development will be coming up quite close to the cliff edge. The cliff itself is quite fragile. Um, it's made of a combination of um, ancient volcanic ash and limestone. And so if they're, they're going to be digging into the site, and if they're going to be blasting, there's a real likelihood that they could actually seriously damage the whole cliff. They could cause falls, and they could encounter large caverns. And they haven't actually provided uh, geological survey data to show what's actually under the site. So that's part of what they will have to provide um, in, in the hearings. Right. But, you know, you would have thought they would have to have provided it by now. Um, they have said that they, in the last week, they said they're going to scale it down a little, um, but they haven't said how, and um, it's very late in the day to be saying that they're going to scale it down, but we don't know. They couldn't provide any details of... Um, what the, what those plans are, so that they have to provide those in a few yeah. weeks' time. So, yeah. so moving forward now, so this three-person panel is meeting, you're trying to gather forces, as it were. How can people help? I mentioned the Save Bridgewater, um, Save Cape Bridgewater site. Is that, is that the best place for people to go to to get more information and to perhaps kick in a few bucks if they've got, got it? Um, yeah, so there's two ways people can donate. If they want to use a credit card, they can go to my GoFundMe page. And if they want to use a bank account transfer, they can go to the Save Cape Bridgewater Association webpage. You can find both of them just by searching um, searching Save Cape Bridgewater. And, and yes, that would be great if people could do that. I would really appreciate that um, because it, it just goes on and on because now with the changes to the plans, um, we will have to get the expert witnesses to look at the site again. So that's an added cost. Mary, all the very best with this. Um, it's, it's sounding like it's... Um going to be a bit, of a, a bit of a fight on your hands so we'll, we'll keep in touch we'll get you back in a month or so to see how it's going and what we can do to help out here at this end uh, but yeah all the best to you and the other people in um, the safe cape bridgewater group down there thank, thank you dr beach That's thank you bye okay see you mary uh that was mary pickard from the safe cape bridgewater group down at um cape bridgewater near um, near Portland in the far west of our beautiful state, Cade. It is one of the beautiful areas down there. It's um, yeah, it's been interesting following this one. It'll be it's interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, love that whole area. Have you ever been down the Glenelg River canoeing? I have not. Oh, do I it. I have not. I've, I've done that twice in my life. I've sat at Nelson before, but I've never been. I want to do it at least twice more before I, um, I don't know, 
go to David Jones's locker or whatever. <laughs> um, where, where is my doctor surf? Uh, I'm sitting out on the deck looking at the trees and the grass and the clouds. <laughs> happy, contemplating life, Dr. Beach. Contemplating life on your birthday. Happy birthday. Yeah, happy from, birthday. Oh, thanks. From the crew at Radio Marinara, Dr. Yes. Surf. Yes. 31, it's a good age. 31, yeah, I'd, I'd be enjoying your 31st birthday while you <laughs> the whole day. You've still got a while to peak. <laughs> yeah, 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 you've still got a while. Yeah, feeling pretty good about things. The surf's quite good today. Have you been out there? You got on, got on a board yet this morning? No, I've got a bit of a cut leg, so I'm going to keep out of the water, but I think my son's going down. But if I was a listener, I would be heading down to the Torquay region, where it's nice and clean, not too big, two to three foot. Um, I think there's a wind change coming lunchtime or early afternoon from the northwest to the southwest, but there's some nice little waves. It's just a wind swell, so the period's only 11 seconds. That that means it's not very powerful. Good for learners today. Down my way, uh, it's not looking that good. I think it's too small for Western Port. There might be waves of flinders. The beaches would be too choppy, and I would still steer clear of Phillip Island because of the shark issues they've been having down there. Right. I, I know there's been a whale washed up at uh, Forest Caves, and I heard yesterday there's another one that's been washed up at Kilcunda. So that's an unconfirmed report, but my scribe is usually very reliable, and I know that there's been some big sharks seen in the area, so keep away <laughs> just for now. Yeah, that, 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 that'd be interesting, those whales, I reckon. Yeah, I think they're fairly well fed, the sharks, but they're still, you get a four or five metre white pointer cruising past you. It's not a very pleasant experience from what I hear. I'd, I'd, I'd be a little bit jumpy, I think, if I had a carcarian carcarius going past me like that. My goodness. <laughs> Eyeballing you, you know how they roll and look at you. <laughs> no, we don't want that. But, but look, otherwise, the surf hasn't been very good this year and um, it's not looking that good for the next few days. Small... Again, the Torquay area would be the best leading up to um, Easter, although I think it's going to get quite warm at the end of the week, which means the beach breaks down here will, will be quite good. Okay, looking forward so, to the autumn swells? Well, if they ever arrive, <laughs> come on. We had perfect conditions the last couple of days and just no swell, which it's not a good year this year. You can't have a good year every year, and I don't think this year's looking that good, but we will see. I am looking forward to them, especially as my son's surfing again now, so it's, there's no, nothing more fun than surfing with your boys. That, does sound, that does sound delightful. Dr. Surf, we're going to let you head um, go back to your birthday. I'm sure there's a banquet that's being prepared there for you oh, by your yeah, family. Oh, yeah, there's cakes and twisties and fairy bread and little red sausages, everything you can think of. A, pi- a piñata in the shape of a <laughs> surfboard, perhaps? <laughs> well, no. All right, we'll do that. Okay. Thanks, thanks, Dr. Sir. Thanks, we'll, uh, Dr. Beach. We'll, we'll speak to you soon. We'll talk to you anon. Bye. Bye. That was our very own um, Dr. Surf celebrating his, I don't think it was his 31st birthday, but it was a, um, yeah, it was a birthday. The show is Radio Marinara, and you are on 3RRR, either listening through your FM device or maybe via the web.
Uh, my name is Dr. Beach, and I'm joined in the studio this morning by Kate Mills. And Kate, you're, you're going to talk to us about slugs, and you've got a bit of a friend on the phone. I do have a friend or a co-worker on the phone. Nicole works for the VMPA, and in particular the ReefWatch program. Um, Nicole runs the sort of Melbourne slash Victorian sea slug census, and she has a thing for Sacoglossin sea slugs. And to tell us more about Sacoglossins, and in particular the ones that made the news around the world recently as they can, and this was the headline, can chop off its head and grow an entire new body, gives me great pleasure to welcome Nicole back to Radio Marinara. How are you, Nicole? I'm good, thanks, Kate. Thanks for having me. Fantastic that you're here. So before we get on to um, decapitated heads and the rest, what are sacoglossins for the listeners? Just explain what a sacoglossin is. So they are um, part of the group that we know as sea slugs, so they're related to things like the colourful nudibranchs. Uh, but the sacoglossins are a bit different to the nudibranchs. They don't have those big feathery gills. They, they often actually look more like um, little leaves or algae because that's really what they eat. And Nicole, let's talk to Beach here. Is a, so things like a plesia, like the big sea slugs that we see up on the reef, for example, which have got tentacles and all that. Now I think they're you know, sort of like huge nudibranchs. Are they sacoglossins? No, so the um, sacoglossins that you would see, um, especially in Victoria, tend to be pretty small. Um, they, yeah, they don't have the naked gills, so they right. don't have the big tentacles, although some of them do have kind of tentacle-like structures because okay. it gets a little bit confusing with sea slugs. Um, but they're more like smaller... They tend to be greens and browns and reds because they, yeah, they mostly eat um, exclusively algae. I need to go back and review my invertebrate zoology. Oh, no, it's, <laughs> it is a confusing one, Dr. Beach, in that so a plesia is like a sea hare is what they fall into. And right. so we have the sea slug census and the question that's commonly asked, and I will ask it of Nicole, is what is a sea slug? Now that you've told us what sacoglossins are, what actually is a sea slug? Yeah, so that's kind of that is kind of the question. That's like an exam. It's like an oral exam. Yeah. It's a viva. Yeah. For your undergrad yeah. zoology. Come on, Nicole. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> we would basically say that a sea slug is any kind of marine snail that has either completely or at least partially lost their shell again. So basically, if it's a slug-like shape, you're on the right track. But um, yeah, what we what we classify as a sea slug is kind of changing all the time. I love the highly technical. If it's if it's slug-like, it falls into the slug sea slugs that are. But we're not going to go anywhere near sea cucumbers, which are echinoderms, an entirely different group. Because what we're talking about here are the mollusca, phylum mollusca. That is correct. Thanks for bringing us all up to speed. Dr. Gastropods or gastropods, these guys? <laughs> Gastropoda? Or I can tell you, my favourite is my wife um, calls them molsucks. That's nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a mispronunciation of mollusk. But she did have to say that. Anyway, headless sea slugs. Yes, that's what I was about to get on to. So these sea slugs that can regrow basically from their head. So we know of a lot of things that can basically, like lizards can drop a tail um, I read recently there's flatworms that you can chop up into four pieces and each piece will engrow an entire, entire new flatworm. We also know of sea stars um, losing an arm, but now we've found that we have sea slugs that can basically regrow from the head. So they re so it's the head regrows a body as opposed to the body regrowing a new head. Yeah, and that's what I want to ask Nicole. How is that possible? <laughs> So that's, I think that's something that the researchers are trying to work out. Um, it is a very unusual thing um, because obviously uh, the sea slugs, um, you know, has, has a bunch of organs. It has like a heart and a stomach and everything. That's all, that's all in the body. And yeah, as far as they know, um, everything 
you know, besides basically the head, is lost when they do this this shedding. Um, and the sea slug is still able to kind of go about its business, even start eating again. Um, and within, you know, a couple of days, it's actually started to grow back the body. And, yeah, it's pretty impressive. Um, they do think with these sea slugs that it has something to do with um, Zacogossans, because they eat algae, um, a lot of the species actually store the chloroplasts which are the things inside um, algal cells that help them photosynthesize. They actually store those chloroplasts in their own bodies um, and they keep them functioning. And as far as I know, there are some species that can actually benefit from photosynthesis once, once they've actually taken it from the, from the algae. Nicole, you said that they, they shed the body. So is this something that happens as, as a matter of course? They just think, I don't like my body. I'm happy with my head. I'm, th- I'm thinking of the Instagram generation here. They do this. <laughs> like my head, that's going well, but let's get, let's get a new body. Is this something they do as a matter of course or after some kind of attack by a predator or is this something that just crazy biologists have done in the lab, see what happens? <laughs> Yeah, it sounds a little bit it sounds a little bit sinister, but it turns out that the researchers actually noticed that it happened a couple of times with some of their species, some of their slugs that they were looking at, um, and so they actually decided to study it. And what they found is that if you looked really closely, um, it's almost like a, there's a cut here line on basically the neck of the slug. So it looks like it's something that is there and that the, the slug's body is programmed ready to do. Like a serrated um, edge take, to tear along. Yeah, 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 pretty much, just like a little a little <laughs> margin edge. that you can see. Per- per- and it's basically that's that's basically where it'll happen every time. Um, and yeah, as far as I can tell, it takes a long time. Um, it takes quite a few hours for the whole body to drop off. So they think probably not a response to predators because obviously if a predator bites you, you want to be able to get away pretty quickly. Um, what they're thinking is it actually has more to do with um, internal parasites. And if you've got if you've got a body that's kind of overwhelmed with parasites and there's not much you can do about it as a slug, you haven't got hands, you can't take medicine, <laughs> so you just drop the body and <laughs> go off and do your, do your thing and then grow a new one. You, you mentioned earlier on the um, that some of them eat chloroplasts, like the seaweeds, and they ca- they keep the chloroplasts. And I'm aware of the experiments where people show that they're perhaps even using the photosynthesis and the material from the chloroplasts, which is a fascinating story in itself. Mm-hmm. But I, it, this group that is shedding their body. Is it one and the same group that that eats the, what keeps the chloroplasts? Yeah, so um, the first species that they noticed in the species complex, let's not get into taxonomy here, um, they noticed that that is a species that is known to um, store the the chloroplasts and actually benefit from the chloroplasts for for a while. Um, And then there was another species. I don't know whether that one is quite as well researched as to whether it's photosynthetic, but um, yeah, certainly the first first major group they're looking at um, are certainly a species that benefits from photosynthesis. Yeah, and the fascinating thing is we actually have that, um, not the species, we have that genus in Victoria as well, so it's something that we commonly find in Victoria. So now I'm getting the wrap-up from Dr Beach, but <laughs> now he's shaking his head saying no, but what we're... No, I was, to, I was just trying to, to indicate that I'm taking over the interview and I want to hand it back to you. Oh, you're okay. Well, no, what... <laughs> I'm talking too much. I quite like when I bring someone in. It's because I've had three. The coffees. interview gets taken over. <laughs> what I wanted to do was focus in on the sea slug census, so get an idea of the diversity and what we have out there. So I mentioned earlier that there was a few going on around Australia, and we a couple of weeks ago had one here in Victoria. Nicole is a person who gets to sit through all those images. Have you got any idea how many people were involved, how many images, and even how many species are sort of turned up in Victoria? And keep in mind, listeners, that this is basically four days of searching. So people went out over four days, and this is what they found. 
Yeah, so um, every every census we get somewhere between about 50 to 150 people out there doing the census, which is pretty impressive. Um, this time around, I've actually got photos from nearly 50 people, and that's not including all their friends and stuff that went out with them, so that's really impressive. Have, I've got over 500 photos to sort out <laughs> in a couple of days. Um, and we're looking really good. Um, I think our, our species record for a census weekend was about 78 um, we've definitely beaten that. Um, I've got to confirm all the records, but I think we're, we're well into the 90s. Wow, that's pretty impressive. So over four days, you know, basically citizen science in Victoria went out and found 90 species of sea slugs. It's not bad going. Any, any new ones? Any, like, new records, new species? I mean, the genera, families. <laughs> So we tend to find um, every census it tends to be a species that is either something that our experts aren't sure they've ever seen before or it's something they might have only seen once or twice and they haven't got around to officially describing it yet. Um, yeah, there's certainly a couple of interesting ones. I don't want to, like, spoil the surprise just yet, but there's a few in there that, I, that even I've gone, oh, <laughs> I haven't seen that before. Thank you, Nicole. I think we're going to have to get you back when we get those results finalised and we'll have a chat about some of these new and different species that are being found and how people can contribute. Thanks for your time this morning. Fantastic. See you, Nicole. Thanks very much. We have the show about all things wet and salty. If it happens to be the first time you're tuning into this program, in other words, we're deeply interested in the marine environment. If you're listening before we had those those carts, as we call them, Advertisements, and by the way, it's so much fun for us here. We were just saying to have it is announcements of happening. stuff that's <laughs> happening out there. It's really, really exciting. Uh, yeah, that track before that was "Dogs in My Neighborhood" by Jeffrey Lewis and The Voltage. Kind courtesy of Cade Mills, my co-presenter this morning. Well, I feel the next guest has probably been recognised because of the dogs she associates with rather than herself, which is a common problem as a dog owner. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And our next guest that Kate's alluding to is um, is Dr. Trish Corbett, um, who is on the phone right now from um, from Warrnambool. Trish, hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's, it's a great pleasure, Trish. Um, you work at Deakin University. They've got a nice little campus down there, I know, with a cute little golf course out the back. But it's also um, <laughs> a wonderful, wonderful environment. You've got the, the whales coming. You've got your whales. You've got your beach. You've even got your penguins on Middle Island, haven't you? Absolutely. It's just an incredible place to live and to work. And so Middle, Middle Island, just to remind me, is I, I have been to Warrnambool once or twice as a youth. Um, it's just down near, is the, Lady, is it the Lady Bay Hotel still there? Yes, yeah, so it's... Um, I hate to place things in terms of hotels, but like that's, 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 that's the yeah. pub comes to mind first. Yeah, so it's near the Lady Bay Hotel, so where the break wall is, it's sort of instead of looking to Lady Bay, you go the other side over to the right if you're looking at the break wall and Middle Island's there. It's a very small little island about 100 metres off the coast. And on that island, there are some little penguins, which is what we call them, isn't it? Not fairy yes. penguins. Yes, not fairy penguins anymore, but uh, yes, the little penguins. So the same penguins that we have at Phillip Island. So they're the smallest penguin in the world, and they're only a little bit over 30 centimetres, so a bit over your school size. And Middle Island is very, very close to the mainland. In fact, it's just like a bit of a creek, isn't it? Sort of the estuary that separates it from the mainland. So... Yeah, definitely. So it's, I mean, it changes, that area changes a lot throughout the year, but over summer it's very shallow. So 
you know, this morning it's only about ankle deep to get over to Middle Island. It's just about 100 metres walking through the water. And so you can uh, get over there and there are other animals that want to eat those um, those penguins that can get over, aren't there? Yes. So unfortunately there's been a huge problem with foxes, so an introduced species to Australia. So the poor little penguins have no way of defending themselves against them. And over summer, when it's nice and shallow, they go over at night and the penguins are a nice easy meal for them. Oh, that's just yeah, yeah, terrible thought because foxes, I guess, yeah. penguins might be thinking they can hide in their burrows, but foxes, as we all know, are good at um, a subterranean lifestyle as well. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So cue, cue the marimba dogs, the nice big white fluffy yeah. Italian dogs. So is, I, I, I picture you there surrounded by marimbas, bringing them up at home and then taking them over there and being like, the, yeah, the, just the, the marimba dog lady. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is true. I yeah, cheerfully, cheerfully I know. I've That's definitely great, been Trish. called the marimba lady or the oddball lady. Definitely <laughs> like that. So... Well, how this project really all started, obviously the, the foxes were going oh, so, over so, so, every day. Oh, right. so, so it's not fun. This is, it's not just you know, amusement for you. This is, this is serious science. Oh, serious. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm serious. <laughs> I am. Yeah. Um, it's fun too, but definitely very serious as well. So, yeah, so we had um, the, these fox kills that were happening all the time and the population was almost decimated by fox kills. And so... At the time, there was someone who's actually studying out at um, Deakin Uni at the time, and his name's David Williams, and he worked on a chicken farm. So some of you may have seen the movie Oddball, which is this true story. I, I still and have so, not seen that film, much to your chagrin. Oh, well, it's on I, I, Netflix and Stan, so you've got no excuse. And did you do air quotes <laughs> when you said true? <laughs> yes, I <did>. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes, you can see me now. Anyway, we, um, we can go to our favourite yes. streaming device to see Oddball, which I shall do tonight, yes. I promise. Which Trish, is a, a, a true story. Yeah. A, a true story. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's a little bit embellished, but it is a true story, or mostly true. So, um, David Williams was working on Swampy Alan Marsh's chicken farm, who you'll meet Swampy when you go and watch the movie. And... Swampy had been using maramas, Italian sheepdogs, to protect his chickens for many years. And, you know, David was talking to him about these horrible penguin kills. And Swampy said, you need a couple of maramas out there. After all, penguins are just chickens in fancy dinner suits. <laughs> and that's the crazy idea that started this World First Conservation Project. Wow. When was that? When, going back how far? Yeah, so the project started in 2006. My yeah, goodness. so it's been going a very long time now, which is fantastic. We're still learning all the time, though. <laughs> I'm curious, you say world first. Does this mean that it's been picked up in other locations around the world, like this technique of people sort of yeah, been studying so, what you do? Yeah, so I, like, I'm, obviously I love dogs and I love conservation, so I'm so excited that dogs are being used in conservation all around the world. And so there's two different types. There's the guardians, which we have, and then there's also detection dogs, like you have at your airport. There's dogs that will either detect native species, like um, if you've got endangered species, or something like a fox. And then we have these guardians that protect. So David Williams, the guy who actually originally pretty much started the project, along with a number of other people, 
David, David being the guy that was working on the chicken farm and saw the marinas yes, in action. Yes, right. Yep. That's it. Yes, sorry. No, 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 that's, no, it's just for my tired old brain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listeners yeah, are so all over it, I'm sure. <laughs> he works at the Werribee Open Range Zoo. And he's um, leading a project along with other people to use maramas to reintroduce endangered eastern barred bandicoots back into the wild. So he's got, um, well, that team's got several test sites and they've been actually yeah, releasing the eastern barred bandicoots, but they're releasing them with sheep as well. So the maramas are actually protecting the sheep and they're trained to stay away from the bandicoots. So the bandicoots are being protected because the dogs are protecting the sheep that are in that area, and then the dogs are, are leaving them to their own devices as well. So, yeah, there's, there, we've also had people in Tasmania because they have huge problems with dogs killing their penguins, and also um, like places like Africa, they have their penguins there, and they've asked us, well, how can we do this with our colony? and our um, foxes that we have here. So it's a little bit tricky because it takes two years for uh, a marama to be fully trained. So people want us to train them and send them over, but you have to, it really has to be in that territory with the animals they have to protect. So, yeah, but it's pretty, pretty exciting. It's, 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 it's amazing, Trish. I've got so many questions coursing through my brain at the moment. <laughs> Number one is when... The maremmas are protected. Let's, let's go back to Middle Island. It's wonderful about yep. the bandicoots yep. and that they're being used and all other things. And that's <laughs> my next question is how much dog training are you doing? But back to Middle Island, yep. the maremmas are protecting the penguins from the foxes. How do they do that? By grabbing yep. penguins and sort of cuddling them and saying, <laughs> foxes, go away? Or do they aggressively hunt down foxes and say, rack off, get out yep. of here, get so back to the mainland? The penguins and the dogs actually have very little interaction because the penguins spend their days in their burrows. But the dogs are on the island and if a fox or something that they see as a threat comes towards the island, the first thing is their scent is a deterrent. If that doesn't work, they have a really deep, aggressive bark and that's usually enough. But if not, a marema will chase. And a marema is about 50 kilos, so a lot bigger than a little fox. Little fox is what, about 15 kilos or something? Yeah, least. probably. Not much at all. How many maremas are, at the moment, you know, residents of Middle Island? Yeah, so we've got three that we rotate. So we had the, you know, Oddball is, is the dog that we, you know, have in the movie. But she actually only spent four weeks on the island and then she retired back to Swampy's farm. So she's not the true hero. I thought you were going to say have... she went back to uh, Beverly Hills or something. She's, here, yeah. she's, got, she's got other deals now with Netflix. She's doing a new Netflix, Netflix show. Um, yeah, so then we had Yudi and Chula, who... Um, so the scientific name of the little penguin is Yudip Chula Minor. So Yudi and Chula... Oh, I got a scientist joke. Yeah, nice yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they did their, um, they were the true, or have been the true heroes of the project. So they spent, Chula was lead guardian for eight years and Yudi's just about to retire after 10 years protecting the island. And now we have the young ones that are taking over. So they're Italian dogs. So they, the next two have Italian names and their names are Mezzo and Isola, which roughly translates to Middle Island. Oh. 
And, and then we have our youngest one that um, he was named by public voting and his name is Oberon, who's the king of the fairies, or in our case, fairy penguins. Oh, that's not beautiful. <laughs> and, and, and Trisha, are, are, you, are you breeding the dogs yourself? No. So we don't breed them. We get them from a breeder near Shepparton. So the last five dogs that we've got. So we've got these these dogs that we've been talking about, but then we also have two dogs that we use for education, Avis and Amor. So they are also from this same breeder. When you say education, do we educate younger dogs or for teaching oh, sorry, no, to, to educate to primary school kids about what's happening? People. Yeah, yeah, yeah because um, we really, you, you don't want to have a Marama that's working and is in- interacting with people all the time. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't really work. You end up with them wanting to do one or the other. Yeah, like a place. So we don't like to over-socialise them. <laughs> but, yeah, so we get them from a breeder near Shepparton because, I mean, we don't it's, – it's a lot of work to breed dogs, but yeah. also, you know, we have to have our dogs desexed over on the island. We don't want any reason for other dogs to want to go there or for them to come off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Trish, it's been fantastic toy, talking to you. I'd love to yak for another 15 or 20 minutes, but we've got to wrap it up in the next 30 seconds or so. But just no, so no. I, 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 I assume from all of this that the numbers of penguins are doing pretty well, that penguins are doing well on the island thanks to the marines. Yes, yeah, so you. we've definitely we've, we've had a few little ups and downs, but uh, we think we have a colony of between 70 and 100 penguins now. So, yeah, we're pretty happy. We got down to four, so wow. um, we're pretty happy with <laughs> where we're at at the moment. Trish Corbett from Deakin University at Warrnambool. That's a lovely story. Thank you for joining with us this morning on Radio Marinara, and we will get back to you in the future with more updates. Thanks, yeah, Trish. great. Thank you. Bye. That was, um, yeah, as I said, Trish Corbett talking about the Marema dogs. Uh, you have been listening to Radio Marinara. We've, um, well, we've, I've enjoyed the show. How about you, Kate? I've had a ball. Looking forward to doing it all again. <laughs> Hasn't been too big, too crazy behind the desk for Kent today. As he said, we tried <laughs> yeah. to get a bit of Skype happening before, but it was like, you know, if we've survived 2020, you can survive anything. <laughs> uh, I'd like to thank Trish Corbett for um, talking to us about the dogs. We had um, Nicole Mertens from Reef Watch. We did. Uh, thank you, Nicole. Talking about the slugs. And, and we kicked off with... Um, Mary Pickard, who is telling us about what's happening down at Cape Bridgewater. And if you missed that, just get on to Save Cape Bridgewater and you will find out what the proposals are down there, which many of us are a little bit upset about. We have been Radio Radio Marinara. We will be back next week. Enjoy your week. It's going to be a beautiful, sunny Sunday. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.